Whether one makes contact with Aldous Huxley through his writing or in personal conversation, the impression that comes almost immediately is that of a uniquely versatile, omnivorous intellect constantly searching and probing with a clean, cold incisiveness. He has been a Western writer who, even as he looked at life with an Eastern perspective, measured it against the backdrop of contemporary science. On the afternoon that we met and talked, I asked him what was basic and substantial in a man's life. I asked him if he could point to specific values and meaning which for him were enduring and veritable. Well, I think I would want to say that the uh, two essential and uh, important and indispensable things are first of all intelligence in the widest possible sense of that word uh, and goodwill or, or, or in the old-fashioned word charity, love. I mean these two things have to go hand in hand because uh, intelligence and knowledge without goodwill and charity are apt to be inhuman and uh, goodwill and charity undirected by intelligence and knowledge are apt to be either impotent or misguided so the two have to go together the intelligence factor is this a very inclusive thing for you uh, to me completely inclusive i mean it includes as far as i'm concerned the what is conventionally called intelligence what used to be called discursive thought which is logical thinking in terms of, a, of our current scientific and philosophical frame of reference. Uh, but it also includes, so far as I'm concerned, the uh, intelligence in the sense of general awareness, of a, an awareness, so to say, on the non-verbal and non-conceptual level. I mean, we have to have both. I think it's very, very important to insist from the beginning that we are multiple amphibians living in many diverse and even in some sense uh, incommensurable universes at the same time and that our business in life is somehow to make the best not only of both worlds because there are more than two of all the worlds we live in and uh, among the worlds we have to make the best of are, first of all this world of discursive thought the scientific and philosophical and practical world and at the same time the world of non-verbal immediate experience these are the two two kind of worlds in the worlds of intelligence which we we have to make the best of i'm, I'm intrigued with the dichotomy is this also a dichotomy between science on the one hand and poetry or religion on the other is it is it that manner of, of encompassment that's involved in a sense yes i mean the business of the man of letters it seems to me and the, the poet specifically uh, has been i suppose with man's more strictly private experiences and also with the, the rendering of the manifold nature of man's experience. I mean, let us consider the question of scientific language and literary language. Uh, the essence of good scientific language is that one word shall stand only for one thing. There has to be a sort of one-to-one -one relationship between the given word and the given event or thing that's being talked about. In regard to literature, uh, the important thing, I think, is to, first of all, to be able to, so to say, express the inexpressible, and secondly, uh, to express the multiple meanings which every event has for a human being. I mean, a human being, as I say, is a multiple amphibian 
living in many ways at once. And any good work of literature inevitably has to express these, these multiple meanings. I can't help but think, of course, that the scientist still uses this other area. It's true. He must, in very definitive and unequivocal fashion, speak. He must be able to communicate to his fellow scientists. Yes. And yet I still am, I think, fundamentally, and really in an excited fashion, most impressed by the aesthetic features of science. A scientist still finds a, a beauty and a grace and a, a formal delight in the structure of a theory. Uh, he still is a marvelously creative and aesthetic person when he develops a hypothesis. Well, I entirely agree. I mean, the, there is no question that uh, the aesthetic uh, aspect of science is a very important one. I mean, actually, our criterion of what is a good aesthetic theory, I mean, simplicity and uh, uh, completeness, is an aesthetic criterion. And one hears mathematicians speak of the ugliness of certain equations and the elegance of others and but nevertheless uh, while he is working he has to have this uh, this uh, language has to be purified in a in this one-to-one -one relationship he has to be very careful that his words don't say more than one thing at a time whereas it seems to me in poetry and in literature in general one of the great uh, arts is how to say many things at the same time i mean look at a play by shakespeare this proceeds on one level. He was an exceedingly good playwright. I mean, it proceeds admirably on this uh, storytelling level. But all the time, owing to his extraordinary use of language, uh, everything is going up in tangents in every direction, so that actually as one listens or reads, one is living in a number of different worlds at the same time. <laughs> and I mean, uh, I've been greatly struck, for example, in seeing excellent prose translations of Shakespeare. Uh, at the Comédie Française in Paris. And you see what an admirable playwright he was, but you lose this extraordinary, uh, well, the real genius of Shakespeare, which is the fact that you are living in many worlds of experience at the same time, only owing to his extraordinary use of language. Well, you can't use language in this way in science. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to purify it in another way. To uh, You have to get it to, down to this... Uh, this naked, uh, uh, absolutely clear one-to-one -one relationship. What, what is this dimension of charity? Sympathy? Empathy? Well, well and, this and, and general goodwill. I mean, the, uh, and after all, in, the, in any given culture, I mean, let us face it, we are at once the beneficiaries and the victims of our culture. I mean, we, without our culture, we just couldn't do anything at all. We should be baboons, apes. Uh, but uh, given our, any given culture uh, is ambivalent. It permits one at once, uh, at the same time, one and the same time, to be fully human. But at the same time, it limits our humanity. I mean, it, uh, uh, it imposes certain kinds of prejudices, uh, certain kinds of likes and dislikes upon us. And I think it's perfectly true to say, as a, a man that I know you admire, Dr. Maslow, Abraham Maslow, said that uh, any self-actualizing human being uh, is one who, to some extent, breaks out of his culture. And after all, I mean, one sees that, in fact, all the 
great seers and religious prophets have always broken out of their culture. I mean, they are merely to say, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, is breaking out of a narrow culture which insists that you shall love only this person and that everybody else is not your neighbor. And uh, I think we have to see that the people who have broken out of their culture, these, the seers and the prophets, are essentially right, and that uh, unless we follow their advice and follow it awfully quickly, we're going to be uh, making an appalling havoc and mess of our world. I wanted to bring up that problem. <clears throat> Granting <clears throat> the importance of the dimensions you described, and I, I support them wholeheartedly, are you satisfied with the levels at which they're appearing today? No. <clears throat> I mean, we obviously have to do much more than we are doing. And we have to do it awfully quick because, uh, after all, we're faced by a great number of problems which are absolutely unique in history. I mean, the, nothing like the explosive population increase has ever happened before and nothing like the explosive uh, uh, technological advance has ever happened before. Nothing like the explosive advance in, in knowledge has happened before. We are, we are living in a world of sort of what may be called chronic revolution, chronic upheaval. And uh, unless we uh, break out of the culture which uh, imprisons us within a world of nationalism and militarism, given the hydrogen bomb, we're obviously in imminent danger. And, and also, given uh, this uh, kind of culture which causes us to spend an enormous proportion of our resources on the armament race, we are not going to be able to solve the ecological problem of man upon the earth. We are not going to be able to solve the problem of a species which is increasing at the rate of 50 millions per annum on a limited environment. I mean, this is going to require all our goodwill and all our intelligence and all our knowledge. And if we spend a great deal of our energies on something else, we're not going to be able to solve the problem. Moreover, I think that if we look at this problem, we may get away from the perfectly insoluble problems of power politics onto the soluble, possibly soluble problems of ecology. I mean, I think that it's high time that we started thinking not merely in terms of politics and ideology, but in terms of biology and the relationship of man to his environment. And only in this way, by shifting the attention from what cannot be solved, which is the clash of power, uh, but to what perhaps can be solved, which is the future of humanity upon this planet, uh, shall we be able to escape from this frightful impasse uh, in regard to power politics which we face at this moment? I, I grant that the injunction is well taken. And I, I too, share your concern. For me, it's an outright terror from time to time. And yet I think while it's certainly important to pose the question, to think about the problem, what does one do? Well, uh, now this is, uh, this is the real problem, because I mean, nothing is, nothing is easier than to formulate high ideals, but few things are more difficult than to uh, discover the means whereby those ideals may be implemented and the categorical imperatives which spring from them can be obeyed. This is the real problem. I mean, one has to dream, but one has to dream in a pragmatic way to to consider how we can uh, obey the injunction to love our neighbors and to behave with goodwill. I think one of the basic problems is uh, somehow to find means whereby the extraordinarily violent uh, uh, 
drives of our instincts and our emotions can be given expression without doing harm either to ourselves or to our neighbors. And this is something which I think that many earlier civilizations and many so-called primitive peoples have thought about. I mean, the Greeks thought about it very carefully. Uh, they got rid of a great deal of their aggression and frustration in things like the Corybantic dances and the Dionysian orgies, which were very important uh, safety valves for letting off steam. And I think we don't have, we mustn't be ashamed to take the advice uh, to, uh, of people who knew less than we do, but were certainly no stupider than we are. And I mean, even very primitive people in many ways no stupider than we are, although they are much more ignorant than we are. Are you satisfied, Mr. Huxley, that an escape valve is necessary for man's aggression? I'm quite sure it is, because I've after a look, the merely preaching to people doesn't have much effect. People have been preaching for an awfully long time, and we're still very much where we were. I mean, take come back to the Greeks, which did more good. Did the preaching of Plato and Aristotle do more good than the Corybantic dances, I mean, which were sacred to the Great Mother? I would think that on the whole, and both were necessary, but I should think that the Greeks owed whatever sanity they had more to the Corybantic dances than to the preaching of their philosophers. But this is perhaps an heretical view. This suggests, of course, possibly a rather widespread series of techniques that should be embraced by the culture and become institutionalized to provide this. I'm at a loss of knowing what this might mean, though, or what form it might take. Well, it certainly can't take exactly the same form which is taken in primitive and uh, uh, earlier civilizations. The possibility I, is attractive, though, I must But admit. I think there are many things that we can do. I mean, I, I can't go into this at this moment, but uh, uh, there are, seems to me there are therapeutic methods. In fact, I've seen them, them practiced. I happen to have seen them uh, at a very close range, because my wife happens to be a psychotherapist and makes use of, uh, of uh, some of these procedures. And uh, uh, they work, and uh, they correspond very closely to what one sees in the anthropological and uh, historical literature of the past, uh, on a much larger scale, of course. Uh, I think these things do work, and I think without any question that doesn't pass the wit of man to see how these methods could be applied on a fairly large scale in education on every level from the um, kindergarten to the PhD. There are educational possibilities in this then? I think so. I mean, I, I hope so, because otherwise I don't know what we're going to do. Well, this is my mm. concern also. I, I certainly see mm. psychotherapeutic possibilities, but it's so long and so slow, and uh, there are just so many people, and as you suggest, not much time. Well, of course, this is, uh, I do think, uh, the, the gravest problem. I mean, I think our space of maneuver at present is very small. Uh, I mean, look at what is happening to the underdeveloped countries. The, the pressure of numbers upon resources is so great that, as Mr. Eugene Black of the, uh, the World Bank recently says, it seems quite unlikely that these, many of these underdeveloped countries will ever be able fully to industrialize, because all their resources will simply have to go into feeding the new generation as it appears year by year. Uh, and they will never be able to stand back far enough to be able to uh, to industrialize, and that they, it will be like uh, the, the, the parable of their development will be like the, will be the parable of the Red Queen in uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass. That remember that Alice and the Red Queen 
ran like mad, and at the end of a long period of running, they found they were standing in the same place. And the Red Queen said, yes, in this country, you have to run as fast as you can to stand in the same place, and to get somewhere else, you have to run twice as fast as you can. And this, unhappily, is the situation, I think, of many of the underdeveloped countries at this moment. This is the tragedy of, the, of, of, of our world, and unless we do something extremely rapidly and extremely efficiently about this, are we going to be in the gravest trouble? Granting that we have possibly a generation or two yet, mm. and that our investment <coughs> in educational opportunities and the change in educational philosophy might meet your concern about the shortness of time, are the things that we might do, things that for you represent good bets for altering educational emphases? Well, I, I mean, I'm quite sure we have to, uh, to think intensively about this and to experiment. And I, I think there would be a very good case for one of the great foundations to invest quite a lot of money in uh, large-scale experimentation to see what, uh, what methods, in fact, work. I mean, this is finally the problem of what do you do about the irrational. I mean, after all, we have built into us neurologically a kind of Jekyll and Hyde. We have the uh, ancient brain stem, which goes back to enormously remote evolutionary past, and we have a relatively modern neopallium or cortex on top of this, uh, which is uh, quite recent. And the one uh, it tends to upset the other. I mean, the, it is, uh, the Jekyll and Hyde are, in a sense, built into us. And that, uh, uh, this is the whole natural genetic basis of the conflict in which man has always lived and we have to recognize this fact and we have then to work out the best possible ways uh, on every level physiological psychological educational mm -hmm. sociological to, to cope with this fact but I don't think it's as I say it's not beyond the wit of man to work methods out and the question, I suppose, would come up, education for what in all of this? Well, um, education, first of all, for survival, which is uh, important as far as I'm concerned. And secondly, I mean, the, uh, as an ideal, I don't know any higher ideal than the, um, the ideal of, uh, of actualizing the greatest number of desirable potentialities. I mean, potentialities for goodwill, potentialities for intelligence in every way potentialities for creativity. I mean, these three things, if we can actualize our potentialities in this direction, we certainly have them. Uh, we have potentialities which have not been actualized. And then we've, uh, we've done something. We really have made the best of our human condition. Of late, I know you have made much mention <coughs> of nonverbal factors, Mr. Huxley, and particularly in education. As I uh, reread one of your essays the other evening, and thought about it, it occurred to me how much in our contemporary education we tend to emphasize these verbal things, things that can be communicated, things that must have a product at the end. And this nonverbal aspect intrigues me considerably. Well, I mean, actually all formal education from the beginning has been mainly verbal. Look, take the seven liberal arts which we've inherited from the Middle Ages. These were all verbal, with the exception of music and astronomy, and music was treated in the Middle Ages more as a science than as a source of enjoyment. 
uh, and astronomy was a branch of theology and also told fortunes. So that even this was not uh, strictly non-verbal and sort of extra-human. But it seems to me that uh, we, we have to, to think of this of this side of man, which I mean, the, the whole psychophysical organism. There's a very striking phrase in in Spinoza, where that very great philosopher says, uh, "Make the body." You know, I would now say the, the psychophysical organism. Make the body capable of doing many things. In this way, you, uh, this will help you to perfect the mind and to come to the intellectual love of God. But this is a very striking phrase from a philosopher who was profoundly intellectual. But I mean, he saw quite clearly that we have to take the mind-body as it is and to, to make it capable of responding to the external world and to the, to the events within itself in a clear, clear awareness. We have to heighten our awareness and heighten the, the things that we do with it. And this requires, it seems to me, a whole kind of, of education on the non-verbal level. Uh, in a certain sense, I would say that the, the whole, uh, an entire program for both kinds of education, uh, both on the conceptual and verbal level and on the non-verbal level, is uh, outlined in two poems by Wordsworth. The one is called uh, expostulation and reply, and the other is called The Tables Turned. In the first poem, uh, Wordsworth, William is uh, sitting on a stone by the side of a lake, and his friend Matthew comes to him and says, why do you spend all your time sitting here? Why aren't you reading your books? And uh, he replies that uh, there is, uh, besides reading books, there is a kind of wisdom which comes to man through what he calls a wise passiveness. The, says the, the eye it cannot choose but see we cannot bid the ear be still our bodies feel where'er they be against or with our will nor less i deem that there are powers which of themselves our minds impress that we can feed this mind of ours in a wise passiveness and this is uh, this idea of a wise passiveness runs all through the literature of art you'll find this again and again the, uh, for example the art critic Roger Fry, from whom I learned most of what I, I know about art, uh, always used to speak of this, uh, this prelude to creativity, which he called alert passivity. And this comes again and again in the literature of art, and it comes again and again in the literature of mystical religion, the necessity of being passive and receptive as well as active. I mean that the, uh, we must somehow learn to move back and forth between a wise activity and a wise passiveness we must be able to take in in order to be able to give out the, the great mystic uh, Meister Eckhart says what I take in by contemplation I give out in love and and this uh, I think is equally true you give it out not merely in love you give it out in creation you give it out in um, in thought I mean that there, uh, I personally believe strongly in quotes inspiration i mean whether it comes from the nine muses i don't know but it, it is a psychological fact and inspiration comes in this state of alert passivity and we have to cultivate it and again it doesn't pass the wit of man to see 
uh, to find out ways in which uh, something can be done in relation to quite small children and that they should learn to do these two things to uh, to use their conceptual mind and to be receptive and yet of course i think we have don't we in a, a western culture an emphasis on the activity doing something to the culture outside and always showing some final product which represents the worth of the uh, person who produces it. Yes, and yet these uh, Western artists, just as much as anybody else, have insisted that the receptivity was essential. I mean, that not merely did you have to impose a frame of reference upon the, upon the world, you had also to let the world come to you without a frame of reference, um, to come to you, um, so to say, as, a, as things in themselves. I mean, what Kant said, you could never see the Ding an sich, the thing in itself. But uh, you have to admit it, it. It's never the thing in itself, but it is very nearly the experience uh, unmodified by the uh, conceptualizing and symbol-making cortex. It just comes to you, and, it's, uh, and what is within has to be allowed to come to you without being modified uh, by the conceptual mind. Is this passivity in Western religion? In certainly in the mystical tradition, it's it's very strong. I would say. I mean, you find it throughout the great medieval mystics. You find it throughout the seventeenth uh, century mystics. You find it in the great uh, English mystic of the eighteenth century, William Law. And you find it, of course, in the Quakers. I mean, uh, who have probably more than any Protestant uh, denomination been concerned with the, this. Uh, alert passivity. After all, the, the whole business of the Quaker silence is, a, uh, is to create circumstances in which alert passivity is possible and in which uh, something can come through from the deep mind or from that which lies beyond the deep mind. And you have feeling that this can be incorporated within a general standardized procedure at the level of, of school for the younger children? I don't know why not. I mean, uh, it's... Uh, in, at present, it would be a little difficult, but uh, I, as I say, we can do whatever we want. I mean, we're, we're not fools, and we have plenty of resources at our disposal. Uh, we just have to, to be aware that this sort of thing is very important uh, in order to work out the means whereby this kind of ideal can be, um, can be implemented. I thought only that our prevailing concept of togetherness was so contradictory to what you're suggesting. Well, but after all, the, the, the Quakers are together in silence. I mean, do we, can't we ever keep our trap shut for a little bit? I mean, there are two indispensable things, intelligence and goodwill. Intelligence without goodwill is apt to be inhuman, and goodwill without intelligence is impotent. The two must go together. Such was the way that one man in the 20th century came to view his universe. This man, Aldous Huxley.